Growing up, our family dinner table was a forum, no holes barred and no topic out of order. School, politics, religion, war, sports, race, you name it, we argued it. The table referee was dad, who mostly listened, but would throw a flag for two infractions. One, bad grammar, and two, self-righteousness. Me and Charles are going camping. Stop. You mean Charles and I are going camping. But what about Fred? Well, Eddie and him got mad last time because Charles wouldn't let us go to sleep. Stop. You mean Eddie and he got mad. Those were five-yard penalties. Changing the subject, I complain about a girl at school. Barbara Melvin is a stuck-up snob. Stop. So now you're too good for Barbara Melvin. <laughs> Fifteen yards for a personal foul. Bishop Keller seldom quoted scripture to his children, but Jesus was his guide, who also called fouls on those, I quote, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. The Pharisee prays, thank God I'm good, while Jesus approves the other man, a remorseful tax collector. This is the story of the prodigal son in miniature. I would like to say a word on the Pharisee's behalf. Where would we be without the righteous? If right doers, feeling disrespected, were to go on strike worldwide, the world would come unglued, and so would churches. I remember a Mother's Day sermon at the Fort Smith Ninth Street Baptist Church, an African-American congregation. My friend, their pastor, A.J. Parrish, preached the story of the prodigal son, but with a twist. For Mother's Day, he praised the older son, the Boy Scout. His son showed up on time for work, said his prayers, and paid his bills. True, he sulked when his bad boy little brother came home broke and was welcomed back with open arms. But let's not be self-righteous about that. Thank God for that older brother, Reverend Parrish shouted, who didn't waste his father's hard-earned bread and give his poor mother sleepless nights for years. The church house resounded with laughter, claps, and loud amens. Let's stay with that point for another minute. There is a grammar to good living in society. It's how we solve Freud's problem of the id. I love repeating C.S. Lewis's description of that problem as he met it in the demons of his own psyche. I looked inside myself, he said, and there I found what appalled me, a zoo of lusts a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, and a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. Those demons are cruel masters if we let them take charge. Our parents quickly train us not to give these instincts full expression. We learn that grammar of good living at the dinner table. And if our parents fail, our neighbors or the law will try to teach us. In Freud's terms, we fold our primal id into a law-abiding ego for our personal safety 
and the public good. And then comes life. We grow up, leave home, and drama, tragedy, and comedy ensue. Some never quite learn the grammar and are constantly in trouble. Some know it, keep it, and then rebel midlife. Some get tired of pushing that big old rock up that same steep hill. And some maintain it's a rigged game and refuse to play self-righteously. These ungrammatical rebellions often end in train wrecks and remorse sets in. Mine was a rebellious generation and I went along for the ride without getting caught, mostly without remorse, but there was a moment. If it's for me, will you tell them I'll call them back? <laughs> there was a moment. It was October the 29th, 1975, my junior year at Amherst College. Frank Zappa was playing the Palace Theater in Waterbury, Connecticut. It was a rowdy crowd in a Halloween mood, and Frank was also feeling feisty. The back and forth between stage and crowd felt almost like a riot. Now, from the warehouse in New Orleans to the Hideaway Lounge in Hadley, Massachusetts, I have been to lots of rowdy concerts. That night, something in me changed. What's the ugliest part of your body, sang Zappa. That was the title of the song. What's the ugliest part of your body? Some say your nose, some say your toes, but I think it's your mind. The crowd roared approval, but not me. I decided with detachment rather than emotion, I've had enough of this. There's more to life than this. I'm made for more than this. The prodigal son was me. Excuse me, the prodigal son was I. We find two moral implications in our gospel story. One concerns failure, the other concerns success. Moral failure, we learn, is sickness, not death. We can recover from it, sometimes quickly, though there may be scars. Or, to think of it another way, we might fail a test, a term, a decade, a marriage, or a vocation. But in faith, we just don't flunk out of school. There is always another test, another term, and last year's dunce may be next year's valedictorian. In Dallas, there was a cop who failed because she was afraid. You know the cop I mean, who shot and killed a good man in his own apartment. And now she goes to prison for it, as she should. But with mercy for the guilty woman in his heart, the good man's brother offered her a warm embrace with words of encouragement. The woman felt lost. I don't know where to start, she said. I don't even have a Bible. The trial judge fixed that after hugging the woman herself 
which she had just sent to prison. The judge went back to her chambers, picked up her own Bible, came back and said, here, take mine. In that gift, the prisoner will see herself in this morning's tax-collecting sinner and dozens of more sinners just like him in the Bible. And in grace, she'll find strength to carry on. That is the gospel truth concerning moral failure. As for moral success, we learn that it is like milk. Self-righteous pride will sour it. Love has no need of moral pride. Love vaunteth not itself is not puffed up, said St. Paul in King James English. So there is more to life and love than getting the grammar right. There is a spirit to it, a music to it. God wants us to sing his tune. That is the gospel truth concerning righteousness. Across America, and here down south especially, we live in a season of moral reckoning for the sins of our society against black folk. Speaking for Southern whites, who failed at both secular and sacred grammar, the laws of liberty and love, by either measure, Southern history is disgraceful, literally disgraceful. In homes like mine, we sinned politely. In Little Rock streets in 1957, the sin was riotous. 100 years ago in Phillips County, it was murderous. If historians were wildcat oil men, drilling the Southern past for ugly facts, they would never drill a dry hole. But the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. A long time ago in one of my churches, a man was cheating on his wife, which she and everybody knew. His wife was sweet, smart, pretty, and his cheating made me mad. The man asked if he could come to see me. He made no excuses. Chris, I know what I'm doing is wrong. I know who it's hurting, and I know everybody's talking. I'm ashamed for the wrong, and I regret the hurt but I don't worry about the talking. They'll talk about me until someone else does something else to entertain them and then they'll move on. That made me laugh. In faith, even sinners keep a certain digni dignity. It's in the book. If God be for us, who is against us? On those grounds, I've never felt inclined to repudiate my southernness. I love Neil Young, but I turn it up for Leonard Skinner. And I know that if you drill into the history of the South, you will also strike gold. For example, Southern women, white and black, generation after generation, are uniquely wonderful. Yes, that is the myth, and it is the truth. The Beach Boys bragged on California girls, they can have them. If you think I'm talking about beauty, you are only half right. 
As for southern men, speaking as their priest, and they are not being naughty, they still live by an ancient, noble, stoic grammar, a legacy of decency and bravery, a pride in keeping your word and shouldering your burden. And to their friends, they are as loyal as Labrador retrievers. And then there's our music. Julie and I are catching up with Ken Burns' history of country music, which is southern to the bone. But the blues, gospel, jazz, and rock and roll were born here. Evil is privation of the good. Racism is always evil, but the southern good is beautiful. Here's something that I know. Little Rock today is not Little Rock in 1957. That truth is certain. How deep is the difference between then and now? That question is debatable. Some say the change is cosmetic. Racism now is more often polite, but still pervasive root and branch. I disagree. I think the changes, not only in law, but in hearts and minds, are real. Playing it safe, some people say, yes, we've made progress, but have so far to go, and I can't argue with that. But I believe it understates the changes that have actually occurred. I read Southern grammar now as a different set of rules than I was born with. And that South doesn't want to rise again. If it did, I'd fight it. And we all would. That is my sincere opinion. And it won't surprise you because you've heard me say such things before. I repeat it because it is widely and influentially contested. In this disagreement, there is much at stake. How we re read the requirements of the present in relation to the past will affect the future. We've got problems galore in Little Rock today, and if we are mistaken with the diagnosis, we may compound those problems with our cure. If we diagnose the problems and sing God's tune, we can change our city for the better and heal old wounds.